You're listening to the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. I'm your host, Arden Cartret. This space is meant to be a tool for you to feel less alone and to learn more about how to get through what you've been through and what you're probably going through. We'll hear diverse stories from women and men in the online space, experts, and people just like you and me who are feeling the effects of miscarriage and loss in real time. This is the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. My husband and I got married in October of 2018. We've known each other um, essentially our whole lives, and we were high school sweethearts and got married shortly after I graduated college. We um, happily married for just under two years, and we decided that we wanted to grow our family and start trying to have a baby in July of 2020. So August was our first month trying, no success. September was our second month. Um, I thought there was no success. And then a week later, I got a positive pregnancy test. So I didn't find out I was pregnant until I was five weeks along, which is typically late for somebody that's trying and likes to test. Um, with my type A personality, I was trying to do ovulation testing, and I didn't really get the hang of that. And then I was doing early pregnancy testing, and pregnancy tests are expensive. So that was not um, maybe my best option to keep some stress down. So we found out I was pregnant on a Tuesday, and immediately one week later, the next Tuesday at six weeks, I started bleeding, and we had lost our first pregnancy. So with that one, I was very confused. Um, I'm on the younger side and people don't really talk about miscarriage often. So I I was confused. I was sad, devastated. I was mad. I thought something was wrong with me. I went to the doctors to uh, do confirmation testing through blood work. And they just said, oh, one is normal. And I don't know why we're using the word normal to describe this because it's not but um, they said, just try again. And, you know, if anything happens, we'll, we'll talk about it at that time. So they told me to wait one cycle and then start trying. So we waited our one cycle in October. And then in November, we started trying. And I got a positive pregnancy test at three weeks and three days pregnant, which is pretty early. And the doctor didn't believe me and made me call back in a week. And so we actually conceived on Thanksgiving, which I think is fun. Um, (laughs) And so we had known we were pregnant for weeks, all through December. Christmas was six weeks, and I felt comfortable that we had passed that, um, that first miscarriage date. And so we just told our parents on Christmas, and... um. New Year's Eve came and I was having some weird like upper abdomen pain. And so if if I wasn't pregnant, I would have just kind of left it. But we went to the ER just in case. Um, they did ultrasounds of everything. And we actually got to see baby, see baby's heartbeat, um, which is obviously very reassuring. And so that was at seven weeks pregnant. And one week later at eight weeks pregnant, I started having some um, discharge That was a little concerning. And then two days after that, I started having full-blown bleeding. And so we called the doctor 
I told them I'm having another miscarriage and they said, why don't you come in? And I still don't know the reasoning behind this. And I think I was too upset in the moment to ask, but they had us do an ultrasound, which a miscarriage is physically and emotionally painful on its own. And then to add an internal ultrasound is physically painful. And then to see a blank screen is emotionally painful. So that this second miscarriage was a lot more emotional for me um, because they said one is normal. Nobody says two in a row within four months is normal. Um, So I remember I was crying and my husband said, like, what can I do? How can I like support you? And I just said, he said, it's going to be okay. And I said, no, it's not because this means something's wrong with me. It's not just a fluke. This is like, there's something wrong with me. And um, so that moment just sticks out in my head as the most emotional moment. As soon as I got past that first day of bleeding, which it sounds weird, but my body is very good at miscarrying. I typically bleed for three or four days with these two. Um, and then I'm done. My first cycle after after the first miscarriage was 31 days. And then most recently, it was actually 45 days and I thought something was wrong. And they said, no, anywhere from like four to eight weeks is normal. So um, my body gets through the process very quickly once it starts, which I'm grateful for because I know some women don't have that experience. And after that first day of initial bleeding with the ultrasound, with that moment on the bed um, with my husband, after that, I just got mad. I was mad at my body. I was mad at my doctors for not catching it after the first one, even though it's not procedure. And I, I just felt very mad and aloof, not just towards myself, but just towards the world. Like I, I disassociated with some things I liked. Um, and that is when I reached out to Arden because I knew that I clearly needed to talk through this with somebody at some point. And so um, since, so that was in January. And since then I have, um, had one cycle. We are trying again for the third time. Our doctors didn't recommend any testing until you have three in a row, which from my understanding might be a little outdated, but mm-hmm. with our, <laughs> I was about yeah. to say, if you want my, um, unsolicited opinion, that's very outdated. <laughs> yeah. So we, with insurance, not covering most of that testing, Um, we decided to just go with the doctor's recommendation, try one more time. If this third one, so I'm currently in my two week wait, so we'll see. Um, if this third pregnancy, if I get pregnant is, um, unsuccessful, we'll go through testing. And if there's any major issues, we will no longer be trying to have, uh, children. So the first time when I was trying to get, I'm very type A. I like to plan things. I like to test. I like to have data in front of me. Um, I work in a finance industry, so I, I'm very analytical. And with my first pregnancy, I was ovulation testing. Every, they say, do it like three days before you think your um, fertile window is going to start all the way through. I, I tested every day. I tested twice a day most days. Um, I'm glad I found cheap ovulation tests online because... I was testing crazy amounts and then same thing with the pregnancy tests for the first and second pregnancies. I did that. And this time I'm just, I haven't done any ovulation testing. In fact, I threw them away. Um, I have two pregnancy tests in my house right now. I decided not to go crazy and get any more. And um, 
with my cycle being kind of off because of the miscarriage with it being 45 days. I have no idea what this next cycle is going to bring. I have no idea if my fertile window is actually when I think it is, but I have more, I have less of a mindset of, oh my gosh, I really, really hope I get pregnant and more of a mindset of, I really hope I get pregnant, but I really hope I don't (laughs) because I don't want to go through um, the miscarriage for the third time in six months. So. Well, it's, it's terrifying after you've had miscarriages to think of being pregnant again, even though, you know, you want to have a child, you also don't want to have more miscarriage and it's a weird place to be. Yeah, it definitely is. And I feel like, um, especially with quarantine, you know, people were saying we're going to have another baby boom. And I absolutely believe it because it feels like every single person I know is pregnant. So I have a very close family member that's pregnant for the second time. Um, and I am so happy for her and her family. And it, it makes my heart full that they're, um, that they're bringing another child and all the exciting things that have happened in the last like year and a half with their first and with this one, I'm so excited. But every time I see a baby belly, hers or others, it just hits my, like the depths of my stomach. I feel a little twinge of nausea and it has nothing to do with that person or how I feel about them. It's me. And so, um, pregnancy announcements, are coming celebrities and personal people left and right. It feels like, and um, that's, that's a challenging, it's very challenging to go through the world holding on to what you're holding because most people don't talk about it. And I'm relatively open about it because I, I don't need to feel ashamed. Um, Nobody should feel ashamed if they're, and I'm, I'm comfortable to share my story. I know others are not, and that's everybody's decision. So um, most people that, um, talk that are, that I'm close with know what's going on, but I'm still technically, I mean, people consider me a newlywed. I'm in year two and a half of marriage. And so I do still get asked, Oh, when are you guys going to have kids or, Oh, when you have a kid, it'll be, and it's very hard to have those conversations. Well, I might not, I may never. And so, um, the mindset has completely changed from, last August and September when we were trying for a first to November when we were trying for the second to now. It's a very conflicting feeling right now. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, it's really hard, especially whenever you're newlyweds and everybody's asking you and then everybody around you is getting pregnant. And it's weird that celebrity um, announcements, they make me just as like anxious and jealous <laughs> as people in my like real life. It's the strangest thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have to talk myself down because I'll see it and I'll get frustrated and I'll say to my husband, Oh, so-and-so is pregnant. And he'll be Mm -hmm. like, okay. Like he just knows not to say anything (laughs) other than, okay. And then I sit there and I'm like, Rachel, this person is doing something that makes them happy with their life. They are expanding. You're not mad at them. Don't like, yeah, I have to like rationalize and talk myself down because it's, it's absolutely not an anger towards anybody could be pregnant. It doesn't matter who they are and I'd still be upset. It's, it's a very jealous feeling um, because it's not just like, 
oh, they have a nicer house than me. It's, it's something bigger than that. And it might never, like, I might have a very nice house someday. That's still a possibility. This could potentially not be something that's possible. Right. That's a great way to put it. And I know, um, I think whenever we talked in January, we talked a little bit about progesterone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever consult with your doctor about maybe needing progesterone in pregnancy? So I have, I asked that question. Um, I know, I think we talked about like maybe some baby aspirin. I talked about mm-hmm. that. Um, I also learned at my January appointment. So I had the ultrasound. We kind of chatted with the, the nurse and the doctor and then went home to tell our parents. And they called me and they said, hey, we need you to come back in. We totally forgot to give you your shot. And I said, What? So I have a negative blood type and my husband has a positive blood type. And so I had to get the program shot and I had no, I had nothing, I didn't know anything about that. So I asked um, the doctor about the progesterone, the baby aspirin, and then I didn't get that shot with my first miscarriage. So I asked about that and if that's any contributing factor. And she really said, at this point, we're looking for three in a row. I don't think any of those things are needed. If you want to do the testing, we support your decision. We just don't recommend it until you've had three in a row. So then I um, I kind of consulted with some insurance to see if it was covered or not. And we just made the decision to not go through that right now. Um, yeah. And we will after this one. Well, and, and, you know, with it, with insurance coverage, it makes it so hard because even though, um, you know, like I said, the, the three losses is outdated information, but insurance still makes the rules there. So not everybody has the same guidelines, which makes it really difficult. Um, so all you can do is, you know, move forward with the information that you have and hope that you don't have to contact them again for testing. Yeah. And the weird thing about the insurance and something that seemed frustrating to me is in my insurance document, it says fertility testing is covered. And I said to my doctor, I was like, oh yeah, it says that. And she's like, well, you don't have an infertility problem. You have a multiple loss problem. And those apparently are two different things in the insurance world. So I I mean, my husband and I have tried to get pregnant, excluding right now because I don't know the result, three times and we've gotten pregnant twice. So right. we clearly don't have an issue with that side of the fertility fence, but they don't consider these multiple losses um, infertility. So it's a whole right. different category. So that was very frustrating because I was so, I saw that in the document and I was so encouraged and I went and I was like, yep, let's order the test. And she was like, well, wait. <laughs> Let's, let's check with them and and see where it's at. And so some things like a blood draw is the normal coverage that they do and things, but the actual testing is where um, things aren't fully covered, which is very frustrating. I'm sure other women can relate to that. Yeah. And I hear from women who are, who have stories very similar to yours, where they, they say they don't know which community they even fit into because they, even though they can get pregnant, they very much feel infertile because their future is, you know, they're not certain about what's going to happen. And um, I I imagine that that is, that adds to the confusion of going through, 
loss and not knowing why you're going through loss and having to jump back into trying and being afraid of being pregnant, but wanting it. And it's just, it's all such a mind game. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the major factors other than the insurance that contributed to us deciding not to go through with testing after the second loss was um, the doctor said, we can do the testing, but most of the time we don't find out what's wrong with you or your husband. And if we do find out, the solutions are typically pretty costly or there is none. So she said, like, if it's a chromosomal or genetic issue, either there's no option or they would have to do some sort of IVF where they, like, examine the embryo before they insert it. And my husband and I, I don't, we don't want to go through the IVF process. Um, we're not called to do the adoption process. So, that, I mean, it's kind of, for us, it's natural pregnancy or like if there's some medications, like um, any blood clotting or anything like that, that we we could do that. But any of the invasive procedures or um, the adoption or the surrogacy, those just really, that's not in the cards for us. So... Yeah. I don't know, maybe I'm more afraid of the results and that's really the backline reason why I didn't, uh, why we didn't go forward with it, but I guess we'll, we'll and see. That's okay either way. Yeah. And that's okay either way. This is your journey to where, you know, just because, um, testing exists and it's like, even it's costly, like that's a reason enough not to do it, but you have the right to, want your family the way you want your family and in the order that you want to do things. And so I think that's great that you guys are on the same page and that you had that conversation for anybody else who's listening to this and thinking that they, you know, they don't really want to do IVF. They don't feel called for adoption. They're not comfortable with surrogacy. Do you have any, I don't know, tips or advice for having that conversation with your partner about that? Yeah, so um, my husband and I are very open, and during these conversations, so um, he he wants a, a child. We both want a child. I definitely want one more. So he has said to me um, in our conversations when I'm upset or even just when we're having a, a regular conversation, if it doesn't work out for us, it doesn't work out for us. It's not changing the way that, that our marriage, it's not going to change us um, and, and our how we're married and things like that. So he's not um, like desperately wanting a baby. And so I think those conversations are easier for us where I would say, you know, I really don't want to do IVF. And he says, that's fine. Um, and then he actually has said, I, I really am just not, I don't want to do adoption. And, and I really don't either, but I think he's maybe a little more passionate about that. And I said, that's fine. And um, surrogacy, quite honestly, is just out of budget. So, um, oh, yeah. so that was a very easy conversation. So I think it really depends um, on your partner, who, where your level of wanting a baby is at. Um, even discussing for us the reasons why we wanted a baby. So I think people just say, oh, we want a baby or because they feel like it's the logical next step in their marriage. And to really just kind of figure out what is your reason for wanting a baby? How bad do you want it? And what are you willing to do to ha to make that happen? So we want a baby because we want to share our love with um, another person. We want to bring more members into our family and, and grow that family. I also feel like it's a next step in our marriage. Um, and then how bad do we want it? I really want it. I want it a lot. Uh, my husband wants it 
quite a bit, not as much as I do again. Neither of us are to the point where we are so desperately invested in having a baby that we will go through IVF surrogacy or adoption. And that's that's a fine decision to make. There are people that go through their life and don't ever want a kid. There are some that kind of want it. And then there are those people that desperately want it and will do anything for it. Um, right. And so we're we're on the higher to middle end of desperately wanting it. And we've just kind of always, I feel like we've always been on the same page with kids um, where we want it, but we're not willing to do those things to get it. Yeah. And I think that we, I, I really am glad that you opened up about that and are open to having that conversation because I think that a lot of people feel a lot of shame around feeling those feelings. I know that my husband and I, before, um, after our second loss, we had a conversation similar to that because we didn't really know if IVF was something we were comfortable with because of the money and the risks and the physical labor that goes into it um, mm -hmm. and not knowing the outcome. And so I think that in the online space, sometimes those opinions can get lost or feel unpopular, but I'm sure that there's so many women who struggle with that themselves. I, I Yeah, I definitely agree. I think um, you mentioned the online space. There is so much information out there. But I feel like for me, especially after my first loss and until I found Arden and uh, the miscarriage doula, I felt that the information that I needed, I knew it was out there, but I felt like it was so hidden because you mm -hmm. see the pregnancy announcements, you see the live birth announcements, you see um, people holding their babies, you see people talk about, oh, it took us four months to get pregnant and it was so hard. And you don't see the I've been trying for 10 years and I know it's probably not going to happen, but we just are going to keep trying. Or I've had six pregnancy losses and I have no children to show for it. Or you, you don't see those. And that's what I really love about, especially the Instagram pages, those stories come to light and it's brought more to the forefront because I'm sure that there are people that um, are feeling like nobody relates to them. And I didn't until I started opening up and I found out that um, two of my coworkers, my yoga instructor, um, a few other, like a lot of people that I know have had loss and nobody talks about it. So more people yeah. that I talk to have experienced loss than haven't. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I, I think that something I say often is that common doesn't mean normal. Just because so many people go through it doesn't mean, you know, it's a normal thing. Mm -hmm. And that, and I feel like whenever doctors tell us how normal miscarriage is, they mean to say it's common. They mean to make us feel like we aren't alone. Mm -hmm. But by saying it's normal, it kind of diminishes. Well, like, okay, if it's normal, then I can't be upset about this. And that's probably why people, you know, kind of hide and they don't feel it's okay to talk about it. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, saying it, maybe the language needs to change because when I first, when I had that first phone call and I actually didn't see um, my OB after the first miscarriage, I just went and got the blood work and then they called me, um, the nurse did. But um, for her, when she said, oh, you know, I, I know I hate to say this, but it is normal. And I, I think that that needs to change or, you know, unfortunately this happens to a lot of women because like you said, when they say it's normal, first of all, when you're going through it, you feel anything but normal. I felt exactly. so, I felt like an alien. It was, it was wild. And for the first one, I was really only 
the six weeks along, which is not, so it wasn't as painful or, um, it wasn't as big of an experience, I guess, as the one that I went with eight weeks. Emotionally, it was very similar, but physically. Um, and so the doctors even, I said, what am I supposed to expect? And she said, you're going to have some light cramping and um, it's going to be very uncomfortable and you're going to have a lot more bleeding than um, a typical period, but it'll be similar. And it was not. Um, yeah, it was that's the biggest lie I've ever been told. <laughs> yes. So at six weeks, it was heavy cramping um, and quite a lot of blood. And then with eight weeks, I was having full on contractions. And maybe I wasn't obviously to the point of right before you give birth, but they were still contractions throughout the entire day. Um, I could feel yeah. it. And then everything passed and the cramps were very much like a period at that point, but the initial right. day or two, it's not. So if your doctor tells you it's going to be like a bad period, it's not. And I, yeah. I the recovery is like a bad period. Correct. But it's the, the moment of actually giving birth to your baby that is not alive, it is, it is contractions. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who has had two miscarriages and then I had my rainbow pregnancy where I felt full-term live birth contractions. They were so similar. And I feel like people aren't prepared for that or they don't feel validated mm -hmm. in their experience of actually laboring whenever you're miscarrying, even at eight weeks. And people have this misconception that because you're early, you know, it's, it's nothing to miscarry, but it's still your body is birthing. It's just very different than what we had hoped for. Yeah. Um, it's definitely... It yeah I'm I'm intrigued if I ever get to the point where I have a live birth um, to compare because again I'm analytical yeah. um, just compare because I know the one at eight weeks was much worse than the one at six weeks um, as far as quantity of blood and pain so um, it was definitely worse so I expect that birth will be worse. But I'm sure oh, it's, yeah. it's definitely worse, but it's, it's it is similar. comparable to like the early stages. Like whenever I was contracting, I was like, oh, this is very familiar. Or it's almost like my body remembered from my miscarriages kind of how to like breathe through it. And it was just, it was really interesting. And so I do hope that you get to analyze the difference between them because it makes you see how care for women after loss really needs to improve. Mm -hmm. And even, it, it definitely does. And even just like basic things, like with my second uh, miscarriage, when I was at the doctor and we did the ultrasound, first you sit in a waiting room with a bunch of bellies. Second, you go in and you're emotional. And at that point I had already come to terms with it. I had already done a lot of my crying, but there was something about that ultrasound where I asked the woman, I was like, can you like just turn off the screen? And she's like, I've never been asked that before. And she said, I don't think I can. And I said, that's fine. And so um, something about that moment, I just started crying again. And then you have to walk out of the, the, of the doctor's office into the waiting room with your eyes red and puffy, your husband standing next to you. Both of you look like it's very obvious what's happening. And then there's all the pregnant people. So even something just as basic as a different exit or a different waiting room and Obviously, with uh, with COVID and what's going on right now, it's a little bit more challenging to do those things. But 
that that's that for me would have been the biggest thing that made me more comfortable with my second miscarriage. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I know a lot yeah. of women go through that. Well, and you know, if they say it's normal and so common, then um, practices that make women who are miscarrying feel more supported and safe in those moments wouldn't be a wasted effort. They would have to do it all the time, you know, so it's not like those rooms would not be used. So it's kind mm -hmm. of, it's just, it's very interesting. And um, I know like with COVID, it's really taught us, I know, I don't know if about where you are, but here for doctor's appointments and stuff, we wait in our car and I kind of like it and they call you and that's whenever you come in and do check-in and stuff. And I almost wish that they would continue that for like bad appointments, like for miscarriage. Like I'd rather sit in my car and cry and then just come in when they need me. Yeah, that would be nice. I, I, I see my doctor at an actual hospital. So I don't know if that changes things versus um, like a general doctor's office but they are not doing that to my knowledge. Um, I'm interested. Yeah, so we waited in the waiting room, and then um, we. the nice thing was we were supposed to get the ultrasound, go back to the waiting room, and then go to the office, and the lady was like, I'm just going to take you back there, and you can wait there. So that was helpful. Um, but yeah. the other thing that I was very surprised they didn't question, so again, second miscarriage as a 24-year-old in four months, Nobody asked about my mental health and it yeah, wasn't good. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it, yeah, it is. Yeah. It was not good at that moment. It was very um, angry and could be destructive and just very, I, I disassociated from a lot of things um, from work, from family, from my in-laws, from hobbies. Um, I didn't disassociate from my husband, which I think was good, um, but I felt very disconnected from everything, and so I just put space from myself to that item um, or person, and so my mental health was not good, and they did not once say, how are you feeling mentally? Do you need a ref or like a referral to talk to somebody or anything like that, and right. that's where that that was challenging for me. Yeah. And what they don't tell you is, is those emotions of feeling like you are distancing yourself, feeling angry, um, feeling sad, and all of those things are all emotions of grief. And so I think that we are led to think that grief is just the sadness, but there are so many other emotions that come with grief. Mm -hmm. And those are all quote unquote, normal grief emotions. And if somebody were to have asked you and told you, well, these are all symptoms of grief that probably would have made you feel, okay, so this, <laughs> this is why this is happening. It's not that, you know, I am just totally off my rocker. Like I am, this is what I'm going through with grief and I will get through this or yeah, even just asking you how you're doing. Yeah. And that was, um, that was challenging from the doctor's perspective, but I feel very um, grateful. And to anybody that feels like they aren't sure if they want to talk to people about it to make, because you don't want to make them uncomfortable, I wouldn't worry about it because um, I told yeah. some other people and one of those people that I told was my family member that's pregnant. And so that's kind of a risky thing. So she knew that I had lost two and she 
was carried. So it was, that was a very uncomfortable, but needed conversation. And she reached out to me once or twice a week for a few weeks to say, Hey, how are you doing today? Is there something that I can help you with? My mom called me every day. Uh, my husband's parents checked in on us multiple times a week just to see how we were doing. And although there's nothing that they could do to make me feel better, that little check-in that took them five minutes of their day meant a lot. So it made me feel more comfortable and more supported. And although I'm not going to get over the sadness or the physical, emotional pain or the anger or any of that, it, it made me feel like if I needed something, there were people behind me to, to catch me if I needed to fall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that is great to pinpoint that way for anybody listening who wants to be a better you know, support person. Um, I always say that checking in is the best thing that you could do. Yeah, it that definitely um, was. And I didn't ask anything of these people. I didn't say, can you make me dinner one night? Because I just can't cook or anything like that. All I just I said, you know, today I'm not feeling so hot. Thank you for checking in. And that that's all it took. It was it was truly a five minute conversation, sometimes over text, sometimes over the phone. And it just kind of lifted me up just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your story and for, you know, talking about topics that, I mean, I've recorded a couple of episodes now and we haven't really talked about, you know, um, the want of biological children and, and the next step. And I think that that's such an important conversation. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable saying, I don't want to adopt or, um, IVF is not an option for me or surrogacy isn't. And I think it's easier to justify the surrogacy and the IVF with a, um, it's a cost barrier for sure. But the adoption, I think is very, people feel very uncomfortable. And I did saying, I don't want that. And it's not, um, it's not a bad thing to not want that. It's perfectly okay to want your own biological children. And I, I just feel like people, there's a little stigma around saying, no, I don't want to adopt. Um, yeah, of course. Well, and it's, it's still very costly. Mm-hmm. Like adoption costs more than um, IVF in most cases. Yeah. So, you know, bio, having a biological child is expensive, especially whenever you have loss and infertility. But, you know, IVF and surrogacy and adoption, those costs are more than a car. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's so crazy. And so... I think that just saying I don't want to do X is fine. That's a boundary. That's you don't have to justify it in our society. I think, um, you know, if you say things like that, it's that you don't think orphan children are, you know, worth yes. having a home. And it's not that at all. It's it is not that. Mm-hmm. At all. Yeah, exactly. It's you know you see how a lot of uh, people, men and women picture their family granted I did not picture this for my family but I picture a little version of me or my husband running around and as much as I feel like um, orphaned kids deserve a, a loving family that just isn't something that I picture for my family and that could change that absolutely in 10 five years if we're still struggling that could be something that's in our future but for right now it's just not yeah. No, I think that's really powerful. I appreciate it.